Look at a sports team, right? Like the superstar gets a factor of 10x or 20x than the rank and file players because the bench players are more replaceable than the superstars because the superstars bring the people to the stadiums and have the viewers on the TV. And so like every business is different, but like our people that have been here a long time and that have deep relationships in the industry. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Keith Wasserman. Keith is an incredibly successful real estate investor who got his start in 2008 and has since done over $3 billion with a B dollars in multifamily and self-storage deals. Today, we're learning about how he built a team, how he scaled that team up, how he thought about compensating all those different team members so that they would be incentivized to stay and perform. We also discuss how he and his team identify the right people to put in the right places as they continue to grow the team and how that strategy has changed over time. We also discuss his thoughts on the state of the market today. Remember, he has the perspective of someone who started in 2008, who saw all of the distress back then and He has some thoughts about where the market stands today, specifically in apartments is really what we're talking about, but he does also touch a bit on other asset classes. Talks about a few different markets as well. So just a great conversation, so much knowledge around building a successful team to go out and do some amazing things in the real estate space. You're gonna learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotes. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you're catching us on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, hit that thumbs up button so you'll catch us on the next one. And uh, once again, our guest today is Keith Wasserman. You're just, you're going to get so much knowledge out of this one. I know. Let's go. Hey, Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dive in and learn more from your experience building a huge real estate portfolio. But before we get into it, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your business and your background? Yeah, for sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. Keith Wasserman here. I'm the founder of a company called Gelt. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, sort of boring, never left LA, even went to college here at USC, stayed local. The farthest I've gone is when we started our business, we started buying apartment buildings in a city called Bakersfield, which is two hours north of Los Angeles. So that's where we got our humble beginnings in the uh, Central Valley of California. And we started with a small single fourplex that was bank owned. And this was in December of 08 when the world was a different time and place, but we're heading more towards that every day, I think, in a different manner. But definitely, we're seeing signs of distress and cracks. And when we started, there was blood in the street. And we were picking up these little four call 25 cents on the dollar and uh, different time. Yeah. Wow. Well, hopefully it doesn't get that bad quite again. I don't think it'll get that bad. <laughs> so pushing forward, can you bring us up to speed as to where your portfolio stands today, what you have been buying since then, and you know what you've accomplished? Yeah. So we started in Bakersfield. We outgrew that. We hit around 350 units there and it's a smaller town and it was, but that's where we cut our teeth. And then we went into Phoenix in 2010, 11, 12, up to 15. We were buying in Phoenix and that became our biggest market. We had around 2,500 units there. Then in 2000, call it like 15-ish, we started buying 
in uh, Salt Lake City, Denver. We were in Reno, Portland. For a hot minute, we were in San Antonio, Seattle. So we've been in a lot of major Albuquerque, a lot of major Western U.S. markets. And since inception, we've acquired around 10,000 apartment units and have sold around half. So the current portfolio sits around 5,000 apartments. We also are building ground up about 850 units in in different uh, phases of development, all locally in Southern California. And then we ventured into self-storage around four years ago. We have 11 self-storage properties around uh, 700,000 square feet of self-storage. So, yeah. That's awesome. So quite the accomplishment. Today, I'd like to dig into at least first the team that you've built and how it got started, how you grew and really how that led to being able to make all of these acquisitions. So if we want to go back, I just want to ask, who is the first person that you hired onto your team? Yeah. So great question. So literally Damien is my cousin and business partner and he was the one that founded the first fourplex and showed me and opened my eyes to these opportunities. So then him and I bought another one together. And then after maybe one more fourplex acquisition, we realized we weren't strong suited in like underwriting and using Excel and financial modeling. And so we, we hired on another younger gentleman named Evan Rock. And Evan, me and Damien did the first year together, the three of us. Damien's core competency was being in the field and dealing with contractors. And I really... That's not my forte. I'm more of the guy that dealt with the brokers and the investors and the attorneys. Evan Rock handled the, the numbers and making sure the assets were running smoothly. And Damien went, worked overseeing the renovations. And that was the first team we had with Evan and Damien and myself. And after a year, we realized we needed to bring on some more, we call them, quote unquote, the gray hairs, someone with experience, someone that had a bigger balance sheet that could sign on loans for us, that could help raise some capital. So we brought on two people, uh, one being my dad, Steve Wasserman, and another gentleman named Adrian Goldstein. And Adrian had experience running larger apartment communities for his father-in-law. And my dad had experience just in the business world and, and had a lot of clients that trusted him. And those made up our original investor base, clients of my dad's or family friends. And then Adrian was sort of our mentor partner that really showed us the rope of large running larger apartment communities. So those are like the next people we didn't really ha- have another hire until another year or so. We brought on Jeff Harris, who just celebrated 10 years with us. And he started at the bottom dealing with asset management and then went into acquisitions and eventually went all the way up to being a junior partner and running the office pretty much. So we sort of have been hiring like where we had holes and where we needed people that were either more skilled than us or provided something that we didn't have or where we would shift our time and energy to something that was more meaningful for moving the needle for the business. So for example, nowadays, I pretty much just raise capital for the business and do strategic kind of vision and stuff. And I have teams that work on asset management and acquisitions and project management and self-storage and ground up development. I, I don't get my hands too dirty. I pretty much stay 30,000 feet up and I have great people that are more hands-on with the property managers, the asset managers, the just the contractor contractors, like everything I used to do in the early days. Yeah. So focusing on your favorite part of the business, if you will, or the, the aspect that you really want to do. So as you were bringing folks on as a owner of a growing real estate company myself, how do you think about, or how did you think about at the time compensating those folks, whether it was in terms of a salary or a a profit split, because if you're paying someone a salary, that's a cost out of your pocket until they generate results. Whereas if it's a 
profit split type of situation than, okay, I'm giving up back end, but I'm not bearing the cost that whole time. So how did you think about that, especially as you grew? Yeah. I mean, in the early days when I was literally still living at home because there wasn't much money being made, like in terms of asset management fees or acquisition fees or promotes or what, like when we were doing fourplexes, we kept the cost as little as possible. And the, our first hire, Evan, like, I don't know if it was that much more than minimum. I mean, it was so low, but <laughs> we made him a third owner. Like we had equity to give, not cash. And then like, as we advanced, we now like we started hiring more and more for experience and being able to pay people more. But like in the early days, we had little cash. So we paid little cash, but a lot more upside. And nowadays, yeah, we are able to compensate properly like comp. But then if someone's been with us for a long time, they get pieces of deals and promotes and people get paid based on like how invaluable they are to the organization. And I always tell people, if you want to make more money, you have to make yourself more irreplaceable in your organization, whatever department and whatever that is that you do. So I'd say, yeah, we've been able to pay more and I, I, we try to pay very well and have the best people, but really have loyal people that have been with us a long time and continue to give them place room to grow and as we grow, you know? So you as the business owner, how do you in your own mind either quantify or determine whether a member of the team is invaluable or irreplaceable in some way? I mean, it's, I imagine there's quite a bit of gut feel to it, but how do you kind of think through that and make that determination? Yeah. I mean, is, if that person leaves, like, what will that do to the organization? Like, will we lose out on certain opportunities? Will we really have troubles in certain areas? Like, how easily is someone replaceable? And that's the more irreplaceable people get paid more. It's just like, look at a sports team, right? Like the a superstar gets a factor of 10x or 20x the, than the rank and file players because the bench players are more re replaceable than the superstars because the superstars bring the, the, the people to the stadiums and have the viewers on the TV. And so like every business is different, but like, yeah, are people that like have been here a long time and that have deep relationships in the industry. And that's sort of like more irreplaceable than someone that's just like, could, you could pop in another person and nothing and it keeps rolling the organization. So it just depends on, I'd say which length of time and department and, and stuff. For, and that's how people get paid and in general, what kind of value they bring. Okay. Do you remember at what point in your business's growth, that shift happened in your mind where like equity became no longer kind of a, not a done <coughs> deal, but Hey, we need to make sure we're giving folks equity exposure because we're paying them so little salary essentially. But at some point you had to have made that shift and flipped over and said, it's just salary until you prove that you've earned some equity. That makes sense. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Once we were able to pay a little more and yeah, we, um, people have to sort of earn the the equity and stuff. And yeah, it's, it's based on amount of time and how, how, how much value they bring and, and on performance. So there's, there's, it's not a, it's more of an art, right? Than a science I'd say. And, but we're as a whole, we try to be very, I don't, not charitable, but like I call it long-term greedy. Like by giving, I think in the end, like we're our, we're, everyone's going to do really well. And if my, like if my investors do really well, then I'm going to do really well. If my team does really well, I'm going to do really well. So try not to squeeze every dollar for myself and my partners, like try to share the wealth. And, and if we share the wealth, that means they're going to put up, put their best effort forward. And then like, 
I'm going to win. And uh, just trying to be long-term greedy is, is what I've learned. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So hiring is kind of the fun, happy part of this equation and growing our team. But the unhappy other half of that is firing people and removing folks from your team. I would assume that you've had to part ways with folks in the past. And if so, how do you think about that and make those decisions when it's time for someone to move on? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we're not that big of an organization. We're around 30 now, and I don't know how many people have left over the years. A decent amount, but it's more like they self-select out. We haven't really had to like fire in the traditional sense. It's usually it's either run its course or it's not a good fit or we haven't really fired m much like in a traditional sense, like maybe a very few. So that's sort of surprising to me. Like, yeah, I, I thought there'd be in businesses more hiring, firing, but we're it's weird. Like we haven't really had to let go of too many people over the years. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I suppose that's a good thing. As long as you're happy with the folks that you have, then, you know, what else is there to say? So another big part of hiring folks is knowing what person that you need or what skill set that you need on the team. And early on, it sounded like it was probably fairly obvious to you where the gap was in the team. But as the team has gotten bigger, as your strategy has grown, the portfolio has grown, has it become harder to know where those holes are and where you need a new person to fill that gap and add to the team? And if so, how have you dealt with that and adding new folks and new roles and new capacities to continue growing. Yeah, I mean, it's harder for me to identify personally, but it's not hard for my senior like leadership to identify those holes and gaps. So it's like we lean on them to let us know if do we need an extra asset manager? Do we need a VP of asset management? Do we need another underwriter person? Like, where are we faltering? And then my like CFO, like, do we need, she'll let me know if they need more people in accounting in different roles. Like, yeah, it used to be me when we were smaller that knew where we needed help, but I, I do know where we need help in certain areas that I'm touching more, but I sort of have to rely on these people that work for me in these different areas to let me know how to, who, who we need to get the job done the best possible. And we try to stay lean and scrappy. This business is not something that throws off huge amount of monies early on. It really takes a long time to build. So, and, and that's like a part of our business that's tough. A lot of groups, they sell the buildings because that's the way they, they make the monies. Whereas we're trying to be scrappy and lean and delay the gratification. And, and that's the way we're going to be very wealthy is just holding these things long-term. And it, But it's tough to do when you have an organization and you have to feed the machine. But we, we try to keep it lean and, and mean for the most part. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, in the corporate space, if you were to go in a much bigger company, go to folks and ask, do you need another team member? Nine times out of 10, they're probably going to say, sure, yeah, give me somebody new. You're going to more often than not get a yes, even if they don't really need that person. But it sounds like you've got everybody rowing in the same direction and understanding the mission so that they're not going to tell you they need somebody unless they really do. Correct. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned very early on in our conversation about your thoughts about the future of the market. And I would feel like I dropped the ball if I didn't bring that back up and ask you your thoughts or your perspective on where we stand today, especially since you started investing during the crash in 2008. So what are your thoughts? Are we in trouble? Yeah, I mean, it's the trouble's different in that, yeah, when we started the Bakersfield fourplexes that we were buying from caught 120 to 175,000, depending on the size, they were all fourplexes, but some were two, all two and three bedrooms, some were one bedroom. They previously sold for four to 500,000. So there was a 
big, I don't know what percentage dropped. I mean, it was a major percentage drop, but those were one to four unit residential, they qualify as residential. And that's where the pain was the most. On the apartment front, when we started buying in Phoenix in 2010, rents dropped from peak to trough around 20%. And values, I'd say, were down around half. Today, what we're seeing is values, if things are trading, not much stuff is trading because there's not that much for selling it. But values are down anywhere between like, call it 15 to 30%. Wow. Kind of third. And yeah, it depends what it is. And, and that's in the apartment space. And like, if you look at office in certain CBDs, like you're seeing just value destruction, like freaking stuff that sold seven years ago, it's trading for half of that or something. So we don't really deal with office, but like that area has been really torched suburban, like class BC or high rise CBD, like, and then on the apartment front, yeah, across the board, values are down because rates have gone up so much. And fundamentally, the like our markets, we're still seeing rent growth. It's definitely slowed down. Certain buildings are seeing year-over-year declines, very few. But in, I'm hearing in certain markets, you're seeing like declining rents more, more than others, like a, like a Phoenix or Vegas, the ones that are very boom and bust historically. So I'm sure we'll be back in those markets. And we're sort of, we started talking to the brokers again and revving up the engines to eventually go back into those markets. But those are sort of like very boom and bust. And we're seeing more strength in like other areas. But yeah, it's definitely, I don't know how bad it's going to get and what I can't predict the future, but like long-term rates are already declining. Inflation, I think, is definitely under more control. Economy still seems strong in terms of job growth. And it's not like where every day in the Wall Street Journal, I remember seeing 10,000 losses, 20,000, all those job losses. So if people have jobs and income and incomes are rising and yeah, then as long as, but they, they're trying to break the system with the rates being where they are. I think, what is that rate? It's at eight and a quarter, the prime rate. And the, when we used to borrow in the 2% range, it's now in the five to six range. Like it's definitely put effect on pricing. Definitely. Yeah. So I think when, especially new real estate investors see turmoil in the markets, they get the inkling or the, the temptation to sit on the sidelines and stop looking. But it sounds like you're not sitting on the sidelines. Maybe you're changing some underwriting criteria or something along those lines. But how have you adjusted your strategy or what you're looking for or what have you to those changing market conditions or at least your expectation of the potentially changing market conditions moving forward? Yeah. I mean, for like a year, we didn't really buy anything. So which is very slow. Usually we buy three to five deals a year. And the reason is the sellers didn't capitulate and lower their expectations. And us as buyers, like we, we couldn't hit those kind of, pay those kind of prices. A full year later, we're finally buying our first deal because the seller, their loan's coming due and they had the option. They could either sell or refi and they're still going to make money on this deal. Not as much as if they would have sold like 18 months ago, but they chose to sell. And definitely values are down substantially. The sucky part is the initial cash flow is lighter because the rates are so much higher, even though the value is down a good amount. But like we're buying now at a, a flat five cap for a 2012 built Southern California asset in Orange County, where that probably would have traded in the low three cap range or even high two. I mean, very low thin cap rates, even though you could b- borrow on the two. So, so finally, we have like neutral leverage, give or take, versus being way negative leverage. I could stomach that. We didn't buy anything because we, cap rates were like still at three or what they, where, where people wanted and the rates were you're borrowing at five to six or something. So 
I feel more comfortable now that the entry levels and values valuations are where you're about neutral in terms of cap rate and interest rate. And I think I feel like interest rates are com- already stabilizing and long term rates are coming down. But I can't predict rates. We've always 90, I think 95 percent of our portfolio is long term fixed rate. And like it's hurt us in the past when we went to sell stuff over the years because of the prepay being so high and defeasance and whatnot. But we still hit huge IRRs. I think our average IRR has been like 25%, e- even with those massive hits on the prepay, just so we could sleep at night. And the, the deals that are causing problems now, yeah, are, are some of these floaters that we're, we're going to get through because it's not a it's a small part of our portfolio. And the, the NOI growth actually is dramatic there on, on those buildings. It's just the rates, it's going to cause some distress in, in, in this industry, especially with when people took max leverage proceeds and uh, in markets that are really softening hard now. Yeah, so the rates have changed pretty significantly, but also the loan to values or loan to costs that banks are willing to do has really changed quite a lot in the last uh, year and a half, two yeah. years or so. So sounds like that, though, ultimately, you took a long pause or a year pause from buying, which is fairly uncommon. But outside of that, it didn't really kick you out of investing in apartments or anything like that. It just took a pause. Yeah, just a temp- temporary hiatus. And yeah, I mean, we're... The leverage has definitely come down a lot and which is requiring much more down payment. And but I think it's a good time because there's a lot of institutional capitals out on the sidelines actually and not in the market. And that allowed us to buy the last deal we bought was from Avalon Bay, big publicly traded REIT here in Southern California. Probably would have had no business buying that earlier. We're buying another kind of institutional quality building now. So like I think I, I like the what's going on now and the entry point and especially for these long-term holds, these are longer term projected holds for us. Okay. So in that year when you weren't making any acquisitions, what were you doing in terms of, were you looking at deals, underwriting deals, making offers? Like what was the activity level in that span? Yeah. Our activity was down because there weren't that many deals on the market, but we still made offers. And sometimes we'd never seen this in our like history, but like people were pulling sellers that weren't motivated, like they didn't get the number. So they just pulled the listing. And that happened a lot. A few times we were outbid, but yeah, it just, there wasn't many, many, as many offers out because there wasn't as many deals on the market. So we focused on like strategic, like what are we doing with the portfolio? Which buildings are we're going to be selling when the market turns here and gets better? Which buildings, like more strategic stuff, which buildings we did a major cash out refi on a big portfolio, like just making strategic moves and gearing up for, we're internally discussing like our first fund. We've never done a fund. So we're going to probably launch like our first fund and like just trying to make some different moves. And, but it was definitely a slower year and I'm a deal junkie. I like doing deals, but at the same time, I I like, I'd rather regret my mentor said, and he'd rather regret not buying a property than buying a property he would later regret. So I think that's really a good saying. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we dug into all this today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. 
Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Keith, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's do it. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Best investment was, I'd say, my my wife. And the reason being is without her by my side, I don't think I, I would have the level of success that I've had. Literally, she's been by me, my side since day one. I think I had one fourplex when I met her. And I brought her out to Bakersfield and showed her a romantic evening overlooking the oil derricks and, and <laughs> brought her to the, the model unit that was still in refurbishment and like didn't have operating toilets. And, sh- and she still stayed with me this whole time. So definitely that's been my best investment and my kids that have come from that investment. Awesome. Yeah. So we have the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So we, we, we've had a few, two or three deals that under delivered. I'd say one was when we were in a sort of like just we bought a big portfolio of mobile home parts in Pennsylvania and we like because of the size, but we overlooked like we couldn't really push rents because there was no population growth. And it just was in an area that we didn't know so well. And like so th- that one still turned out like a single digit, like eight IRR and stuff, which we were happy with, even though we thought it was 12 to 14. Other big misses were selling buildings that like I wish I could have held on to. Like things in Phoenix, we were buying for forty thousand a unit that are now like two hundred fifty thousand a unit. So that was those were some big misses that keep me up at night. And yeah, the, 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 was that the question? Like some failure? Uh, yeah, the worst investment you ever made. I mean, it sounds like the mobile home park portfolio in PA. Probably yeah, the one. we did well in the other parks, but that one was just like real bitch to manage, and <laughs> it was hard to find people to oversee it and. We weren't really good at management and there was no great third party managers. So we had to manage it in house, which is we're not, that's not one of our core competencies. We outsource property management to more capable third parties. So it was just a rough experience. What part of PA? I'm originally from PA. I'm very curious. Yeah. It was in like, I want to say we called it Scranton, but it wasn't even Scranton. Mm. It was like Wilkes Barre. And if you mention some little towns, like it was one was like an Amish area. I, I forget exactly, but there was, Population declining. Yeah, for sure. Population growth. That's a lot of Pennsylvania for you. So great. So my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important lesson I'd say is reputation and how like it takes so long to build, but yet it could be quick to fuck up and, and go the other way. So I'd say the importance of reputation and the importance of having the right people and the right partners. I mean, I think it's like, a partnership is like a marriage and a lot of them don't make it, right? So I'd say you got to have a little luck and just ha- finding good partners. If some people could do it on their own, I'm not one of those that handle the highs, the lows without having partners and partners that are better in certain areas than I am in other areas. So I'd say it's all about the people at the end of the day, partnerships being most important and just just alignment with the right investors. Like upfront, I tell them what the risks are involved and what our strategy is, and like sometimes it's not the right alignment for the investor, but if it is, it could be a magical thing that can work for decades and decades. We, we've already seen that like some of our investors have passed over the last 14 years, and we're dealing with the second gen, and I'm sure we'll eventually we'll deal with the third gen. I mean, we're pretty young, so I'm 38, and Damien is like 42, and we'll be doing this hopefully the rest of our lives, so we'll, we'll having those great relationships and, and stuff. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. 
If folks out there want to get in touch or learn more about you, where can they find you? Yes, I'm really active on Twitter, LinkedIn, or they can just shoot me an email. It's Keith at geltinc.com. So feel free to ask any questions. More specific question, the better so I can answer versus can I pick your brain kind of thing. I'd say if you want to hear more about my entrepreneurial journey, you can just type my name in Google. And I've done a ton of podcasts and talked about my experiences. But yeah, reach out to me if you have any questions, comments, concerns, interests. Yeah, happy to be there. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.